This is the time in our service where we open God's Word and look to it together. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, we have a bunch of Bibles that have been disinfected that look like this, and our ushers will be just walking through with those. So just uh, signal to them that you need one, and they'll get one to you. We all want to be uh, looking to the Bible for our authority, not me. So uh, feel free to let them know as they walk around. We are going to be uh, continuing our series, this summer series, called Good News. We're focusing on the good news that the Bible teaches, sometimes called the gospel. And for that, this morning we're looking at a passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. So if you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. If you are using one of these Bibles that are being distributed, you can find that on page 944. It's on page 944 in these uh, black Bibles that are being distributed. We always feel uh, as a church that the most important thing we do in the service is when God's word is read. That's because that's when we hear directly from God himself. So one thing we do collectively when we read God's word together in the morning service is we stand for the reading of God's word. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You can be seated and we'll pray together. Father, we cannot hear your word read. We cannot hear your voice and remain neutral. We either receive it with faith or we reject it. And so now as we stop and consider these words we've just read, we together ask for your spirit's movement in our midst. Shape us and mold us by your word. May the things that you have to say go down deep into us. Encourage us, change us, strengthen us, transform us, redeem us. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's without question when we think about the good news that the most central, the most critical aspect of the good news is that our souls stained by sin can escape the judgment we deserve and enter into heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
few weeks ago we learned it this way, these fancy words, justification through propitiation, right? But if we sell people a gospel that only is good to allow their souls to escape hell and go into heaven and does not touch on all of life, we have sold them a gospel that is sub-biblical. The Bible does not put forth a gospel that is merely about our souls being saved. It's all-encompassing. Sometimes we might think of the gospel like an ejector seat. You're in this plane and it's going down. And just immediately before it crashes and burns, you get shot out into an eternity with God. But that's a wrong view. The gospel, according to the Bible, is much more like this. God takes that plane, pulls it out of its nosedive, restores its failing engine, removes the clouds that are covering Restores us back to our place, piloting that plane in a way that we get to enjoy it we never, in a way we never have before. So this morning we're going to be looking at the, the full aspect of that gospel. And we begin with verse 18 which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This verse really presents the, the heading for the whole sermon, the theme for the whole sermon. And I would summarize it like this. Present suffering, future glory. Present suffering, future glory. It's a capturing of verse 18, but it's really the theme of the whole passage. There's a, a word that I love. It's one of my favorite Greek words in the middle of this. The word is axios. I've been a pastor for about 20 years. And in 20 years, I've only been able to name one ministry. And we named that ministry axios. For a word right here in the middle of this verse that's translated comparing, not worth, not worth comparing. And, and the word is really kind of a scale word. It's a word that... Um, compares two things. So, so on the one side, you, you have the present sufferings. On the other side, you have future glory. And, and it's, it's a scale like this. So I want you just just kind of do something for me. I'm going to have this side first. And I want you to think about your present sufferings. I, I know many of your stories, not all of you, but even for those I know, there's probably things I, I'm, I'm not aware of. But just, just consider your present sufferings, and I want you to put them in this side of the scale. Right? That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight, the present sufferings. But here, the Bible says that if, if you have a scale like this, and you put on this side, the future glory, all the goodness of what's going to come in God's future kingdom, the scale goes like this. 
It actually says it's even more than that. It says it doesn't even work on the scale. It's not even worth putting on the scale. You'd break the scale because however low your lows are right now, the heights of our future glory aren't even worth comparing. Hear God's word to you this morning. God is speaking to you in your suffering and he's telling you that though the present suffering you feel is intense and heavy, the lows you feel pale in comparison to the heights you will know for all eternity if you are in Christ. Present sufferings, future glory. I just want to make two observations about this verse that I think are important as we think about suffering and future glory. The first is this, this passage assigns these two categories to certain eras, certain times we live. So there, there is this little blip compared to eternity that represents the time from when Adam rebelled and brought in sin and the time when Jesus returns and ushers in his new and eternal kingdom. There's this little blip, this era, and this era is defined by suffering. It happens to be the era that we are in right now. But there is coming a day that Jesus will usher in that is an eternal day that lasts forever And that time will be defined by glory. So it's good to just know when we live and why. That explains why we're going through what we're going through. The other observation I want to make is that there is a a relationship between suffering and glory. We see that even with the word axios that that links these together in a kind of uh, scale relationship. But you see it especially if you just looked above in verse 17, where it says, We will be heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. You can't know the glory of crossing the finish line of a marathon if you haven't endured the suffering of running that arduous race. You won't know the full joy of a delicious meal if you don't come to the table hungry. And in some way, the Bible teaches the future glory that awaits us will only be the glorious, wonderful experience that God wants for us if we have in this little blip of this era experienced suffering. So, heading for the whole sermon given to us in verse 18, present suffering, future glory. Verses 19 to 22 spell out one key implication of that. I've summarized 19 through 22 this way. Creation groans and waits. I think I said that one. Creation waits and groans. That's what I meant to say. Creation waits and groans. See, we can think that our our sin just kind of cut us off from God. 
But the Bible teaches that our sin unleashed bondage affecting all of creation. The curse affected everything. Wildfires in B.C., tornadoes in Barrie, flooding in Europe, even gypsy moths. All that is affected by what we have done. So you see in our passage, it describes what creation's under in verse 20 as it was subjected to futility. And then in verse 21, bondage to corruption. What we did as mankind rebelling against God contaminates everything. It's why there are black holes out in outer space. It's why there are meteors that come crashing down, attacking our planet. It's why there's hailstorms. It's why the tiger has to kill to eat. It's why the cobra strikes. Our world is in bondage to corruption. And it was forced to, it was against its will. But we, as, as the heads of creation, as the capstone of creation, in our rebellion against God with Adam, have subjected it to this futility. I was going for a walk with my family a couple weeks ago on the Bruce Trail, and we got to talking about the Garden of Eden. And my oldest daughter said, she said, I don't think we can even imagine what it would have been like. She said, because... Because Adam's sin has affected creation so much, I don't think we'd even recognize it. I'd never thought of it that way, but I think she's right. You look out on the beautiful world that God's given us, these blue skies, the cool breeze, the, the green leaves against the dark of the, of the bark. It's so glorious. And that is it in bondage and shackled. Imagine what it'll be one day when those shackles are broken in all its glory. Can't even imagine. Bondage to decay, subject to futility. And so creation groans. All creation, it says, together groans. Under the great weight, it bends and creaks and totters, groaning. But it's a particular kind of groan. It's not the groan of an elite athlete who breaks his ankle and has to give up the fight. It's not the groan of a captured spy who is being tortured so he'll reveal secrets. It's not the groan of the parents who've been, uh, whose kids have woken up in the middle of the night for the umpteenth time. Kids. It's a very particular kind of groan. Did you notice that? 
verse 22, groaning together with the pains of childbirth. What's unique about that kind of groan? What's unique about the, the groan of childbirth? Well, it's a groan that's waiting for something. It's a groan that if you look at the last word in verse 20, has, you see it? Hope. It's a unique kind of groan. It's a groan that's in pain, but waiting, waiting for something good to come. And what is it that as creation groans, it waits for? Well, we see it in verse 21. It waits for the moment when it's free from its bondage to corruption, shares the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. So, so, so it's, it's that moment when the shackles come off and it's able to be the thing that God has intended it to be. That is what it's waiting for. But there is a moment when that will happen there in verse 19, we're told all of history, all of created history, all of human history, all of creation's history is moving to a very specific point, a deliberate point. What is that point? According to verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say, the time when we experience the full glory of our adoption as God's sons. Where our new bodies and our souls made new are united physically with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. That's the moment that all of creation is waiting for. That's when the redemption will come. Which, of course, is talking about the time when Jesus returns to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. That's the moment we're looking for. That's the, the moment creation is groaning for. So all, all creation, everything in creation is under the weight of sin and the bondage to corruption. We're all experiencing the present suffering and awaiting the future glory. So creation waits and groans. But it's not just creation that waits and groans. Verses 23 to 25 say it's true for Christians as well. This principle of present suffering, future glory, yes, it applies to all of creation, but it also applies to Christians. And that's the second point or second implication. The second implication is that Christians wait and groan. Christians wait and groan. Verses 23 to 25. Now hold up. Wait a second. Christians? Christians aren't exempt? I mean, I thought, I thought Terry told us last week from 2 Corinthians 5 that we are given, we are, we are new creations. 
We are given new hearts. Doesn't the Holy Spirit come and indwell us? Aren't, aren't, we, aren't we able to come to Jesus with our, our heavy burdens and find his light yoke? Isn't it true that nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ so that in this foul world we are more than conquerors? Are, are we really supposed to suffer? Aren't we exempt from that? Sadly, there are some preachers who come along and tell you, twisting the Bible, that we should be exempt from the present sufferings. But while they fly around in their million-dollar jets, Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. Not just a groan, but a deep inward groan that arises from the very, the very core parts of who we are, our very souls. In my first 30 years of life, there are moments when I experience that groaning. And I can, remember, I can remember them. Since then, that feeling of groaning has become much more intense, much more frequent. How about you? Where do you feel that, that inward groaning under the present suffering of this world? It's real, isn't it? Why? Why are Christians not exempt? Well, the passage tells us. Because even though there is much that is already ours, there's also much that is not yet ours. It's an important phrase to think of as Christians. There's an already and there's a not yet to our walk with God. I've already mentioned all that was already ours, but there's stars. And in our passage, it says this in verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. And here's the key phrase, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for? We're suffering because we're just waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Let you in on a little secret that you might not want to know. I have stinky feet. Sweaty, smelly feet. If I wear a boot all day long, that boot starts to stink. If I wear that boot for long days, for many days, many weeks, eventually a few years, that boot starts to not be a real pleasant smelling boot. And do you know what? When I take the stinky foot, foot out of the boot, it still stinks. And I could even take that foot and scrub it clean so it smells like Irish Spring. 
and put it back in the boot and do you know the boot would still stink? And that is what the scriptures say has happened to us. Yes, our very core, our hearts, our natures have been made new. God's taken the stink of the old nature and he's, and he's planted in us instead a new heart, a, a new man, a new creation at our very core. And yes, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells there, but yet we carry about this body and the body carries about within it the stink of the old man. In Romans 7, just the chapter before, Paul is agonizing about how he has these new, this new heart and these new desires, but it's battling against the flesh, our bodies. And our bodies feel the weight of sin. Even, even if we have that new nature, Our bodies feel the pain and carry of, of the abuse that was done to us. And it lingers in our flesh. That trauma, that experience, the body, as one author says, the body, body keeps score. The sinful desires that were native to our old nature, those lusts, those impulses, still there, lingering. That old flesh, it can just, anger can just flash up in it, out of nowhere. Where was that? That's not me anymore. Addictions that have kind of become hard-grained in that flesh are hard to shake. The pain of that broken friendship. It lingers in our flesh. Even as our hearts decided to forgive and not be bitter. These bodies aren't going with us to eternity. We're getting new boots. And one day, Jesus returns. And he takes this broken, sin-stained, stinky old man flesh of ours. And he gives us new bodies. And then we are whole and new. What a glorious day that will be. So when you think about longing for a new body, don't think about, hey, maybe it'll be able to pass through doors or maybe it'll be able to fly. No, it's more than that. It's about being free from the, 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 the joints aching. And the eyesight failing, and the body creaking, and the disease that riddles us. Yes, but it's even more than that. It's about being free from this flesh that drives us back to the old stinky ways of the old man. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're looking forward to. So Christians, we groan because of this flesh of ours, this body of ours that's not yet 
redeemed. Even though we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even though we have the new hearts, even though we've been restored to relationship with our Father, and we have all that, the already, the not yet makes us groan. The formula, present suffering, future glory, applies to Christians as well, despite what the silver-tongued prophets say. There's a key word, though, to our groaning, right? It's a certain kind of groaning. A groaning that waits. What's the key word? Hope. Right? We see it in verses 24 and 25. It's repeated over and over. When Jesus saved us because of the work he did on the cross, when, when we are justified because of what he did to appease God's wrath, he also, at the same time, guaranteed that he would return to usher in that new kingdom. And so he gave us, at that moment, hope. We were saved with hope. Now, it says you can't have hope if you have it all right now. If you have it all, there's no hope involved. Hope is something you don't yet see. So the scriptures say, we wait with hope because we know something's coming. Now, this world's always trying to provide hope. It knows it's a dark place. It's always trying to provide hope. What's unique about the Bible is that it's credible hope. To use a business term, there is proof of concept. Jesus has already died and he has bodily risen from the dead in a way that was attested to by many witnesses predicted ahead of time by the scriptures. It's credible. And then we who put our faith in Jesus get those new hearts and we get the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so that we experience new desires, new hope, new life, new joy. We experience that lightness that Christ promises. And so we know it's true. And so we, we have hope that's not just vain hope, but true hope grounded in something credible. I know some who are hearing this are not yet followers of Christ. All the good news about what Jesus is going to come back and do, restoring creation, giving us new bodies, it can only be experienced by those who have been made right with their Heavenly Father, having their sins forgiven, putting their trust in Jesus. So as you hear us talk about these things as Christians, don't think, oh, that's mine too. Think, God right now is offering that to you, but it must be received by faith. Present suffering, future glory, even Christians are not exempt. Creation waits and groans. Christians wait and groan. My, uh, my oldest daughter, Anne, who I mentioned before, uh, just finished writing a short story about a refugee. And I'm going to quote a paragraph, paragraph of it with her permission. I already got the permission. It goes like this. The stars stretch above me 
The sand stretches beneath me. My home long gone for my thoughts is behind me. Before me is the desert, wild and desolate. It would be dangerous to cross it alone. The sun is harsh and searching. The sand dunes are cruel and tricky. But beyond that is hope. Perhaps I have lost everything. Perhaps I may never regain myself. Perhaps I might not even survive the desert. But I have hope. So, filled with fragile hopes and buried doubts, I begin to walk. The stars above me, the sand below me. It's really a great picture of the Christian walk. This arduous journey that we're on. But because we have, yes, fragile hope mixed with buried doubts, we can keep walking. The gospel isn't just an ejector seat that helps you at the very last minute escape out of this broken world and go to heaven. The the gospel has implications for all the brokenness in this world. It speaks to all of it. It speaks to the, the wretched schools. It speaks to hurricanes, and tornadoes, and ice storms, and floods, and droughts. It speaks to addictions. And depression, post-traumatic stress, speaks to all of it. Yes, at the very core and most critical is that we ourselves can be part of that future redemption, even though we're sinners. At the very heart of it is that what Jesus did allows us to be forgiven, to enjoy that. But that's not all of it. The gospel is good news for all of creation. You see, one day Jesus is going to come back and creation itself will be unshackled, freed to be all the glorious goodness of what God intended it for. And one day Jesus is going to come back and for those who are in Christ, we will receive new glorious bodies that are free from all the crud that circulates in our, in our very souls because of the flesh that we have. What a glorious day that will be. We look forward to it. We wait for it and we groan for it. The Christian experience is one of groaning in this era of present suffering. So, Christian, wait and groan. The present suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that awaits. And so, Christian, filled with fragile hope and buried doubts, let's walk.
the stars above us and the sand beneath us. You join me in prayer. Father, we're standing on Jordan's banks, this side, this side of eternity, this side of Jesus' return, this time of present suffering, and we yearn for the promised land. We groan for it when true, full redemption comes. Amen.